On the Black Information Network, our stories matter. That's why BIN proudly supports the Hashtag Matter podcast, an eight-episode drama from Shondaland Audio that shines light on issues relevant to Black communities across America. To learn more about America's only 24-7 all-news network for Black communities, listen now at BINnews.com. That's BINnews.com on your local Black Information Network station or on the iHeartRadio app. This podcast is a dramatization of fictionalized events that contains culturally insensitive language and violence. It's been over an hour since the shootout with the police. Following Gerald's orders, Jace boards up the back door. Up front in the main bar area, Martin measures the time by watching droplets of blood drip from Sergeant Place's leg. In the kitchen, Gerald holds vigil over his son Niles, who's still stretched across the cold, stainless steel table. From the looks of the expansion and contraction of his diaphragm in the video, Niles is definitely still breathing, but other than that, he's unconscious, and attempts to wake him have been futile. Looking at Gerald here as he observes his wounded son, I can't help but wonder what was going through his mind as he studied Niles' dislocated shoulder, crushed orbital socket, smashed jaw, broken thigh, fractured ankle, contused ribs with taser burns on his chest, and several other black and blue bruises all over his body. What were the effects on this father's psyche after this protracted, solemn observation of his only son? clinging to life on that metal slab. Whatever was going on inside Gerald's head, in this moment, as he stood over his son, he showed nothing but absolute stoicism. This case presented a lot of challenges from the start. Once the HTs retreated into the building, the standoff had begun. But as you can imagine, emotions were running high among our officers because one of our own was being held against his will, and word was starting to spread among the ranks that Officer Webb perished en route to the hospital. That's Commander John Ammons. He arrived and assumed control on site shortly after the failed attempt by lower-ranking officers to take the building by force. So the first thing I had to do and continued to have to do was remind my teams that we have to rely on our training and treat this like any other standoff situation. And was that hard to do? It was an uphill battle. Tactical was incessantly in my ear lobbying for us to make a push into the building again, and snipers in their bird's nest positions wanted a carte blanche green light to fire if the slightest window of opportunity presented itself. Did you give it to them? No, of course not. Last thing you want to do is give the order to fire when you don't know what you're shooting at. Because the windows were blocked. Correct. We had zero line of sight into the building's interior because construction paper was blocking all the windows. But normally there's some visibility into the edifice or location that the HTs are in. Unfortunately, not the case in this situation at all. So, this pretty much neutralized my sniper's primary function, which is to do recon through their scopes, let alone taking a shot at neutralizing the target or targets. If you add that to the fact that we had a public safety and security concern because of the growing crowd of onlookers and media, plus the immense obstacle we faced in trying to negotiate with these particular HTs when we had committed the first hostile act, it was all challenging from the start, to say the least. 
And when you say first hostile act, are you referring to Place and Webb beating Niles up, or are you referencing your guys trying to take the building? Allow me to clarify, okay? I'm talking about from the HT's point of view. Just a quick note. You'll notice that the commander keeps saying the HT's. That's police speak for hostage takers. When entering a negotiation, you always have to be cognizant of the fact that what's reality to you may not be reality to the other side. My point is the HT's viewing us, the police, as their primary foe didn't do the negotiation any favors, and we hadn't even begun negotiating. Everything, and I mean everything that had transpired before command was even set up, made it extremely difficult for my negotiation team to get off on the right foot with the HTs once a private, direct line of communication, or a throw line, was established. And how did that first call with Gerald go? Gerald Hayes was combative from the start. And when you say combative... I'll give you an example. This is the voice of Detective Stan Hallmer, lead hostage negotiator. He had me meet him at the police academy's gymnasium in Elysian Park, where he's overseeing his police league's basketball team. Hallmer is the assistant head coach. As a general rule of thumb, I never grant any hostage takers requested demands until I'm in direct communication, and more importantly, until I've built a basic rapport. The reason being is, you have to establish the rules of engagement if you're going to have a successful negotiation. Now this particular HT, Gerald Hayes, was yelling at us from the get-go, before the throw line was even up, telling us to put down our weapons and that he needed a medic. He's essentially giving us a laundry list of demands before the opening tip-off. And in my 27-year career of negotiating standoffs, I have learned that old saying, you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. <laughs> it always applies. <laughs> so it's very important you get the HTs to understand as quickly as possible that everything is an exchange. It is always transactional. Never a handout. The Helmer tell you that give a mouse a cookie bullshit? Actually, he did. How did you know that? This is former Detective Curtis Patterson. At the time, he was backup lead negotiator on the case. I'm interviewing him aboard his boat docked in the Marina del Rey Harbor. Elmer's never been good at adapting to a situation, which is funny because that's essential to our trade, you know? He has his playbook and he runs it. And that just wasn't the right approach for that night. How so? By the time we got a throw line up, and finally made contact inside the bar, Gerald had been asking for a doctor for over an hour. But Helmer flat out ignored that request because it wasn't in the order that he likes to do things. Did you raise your concern? Yeah. But the answer I got was some snide comment like, amateur hour's over. I'd rather not enter into my negotiation doing favors for nothing. After the botched attempt to take the building, the commander wanted to make sure that we settled down and did things the right way. So once the throw line was up, were you able to establish the type of report that you like? Uh, there was a rocky start. Hammer got his ass handed to him. That's how it started. But I'm sure you've heard that already. Unfortunately, the surveillance audio from Jace's 42 only picks up the bar side of the conversation. And where the phone is located relative to the surveillance cam, it's, it's just been really difficult to make out a lot of what Gerald was saying. What about the department's tapes? Wait, 
there's tapes? What tapes? Detective Patterson explained to me that the department has a policy of recording throw-line conversations so that negotiators can review things that were said during standoffs. This was news to me, because so far the police department had told me that they had given me access to all recordings from that day. Uh, that's not it either. What you're hearing is Patterson, head first in a small storage cabin in the underbelly of his boat. Normally I would have turned their tapes back into evidence by now, but I got fired before they gave me a chance to, so fuck them. Do you think that being let go had anything to do with the fact that... That I'm black? I think it has everything to do with it. Oh wait, this might be it. Can you hand me that flashlight? Yep, got it. Patterson resurfaces, slightly winded, with a manila envelope sealed inside a family-sized Ziploc. When he was down there, he couldn't find the machine he normally used to play the tapes, so I had to make a run to three different electronic stores to buy one. That said, it was worth it. But before I play this first conversation between Gerald and the lead negotiator, Detective Hallmer, I want to make sure that you have a visual of who's inside the command vehicle right before the inaugural throw line call. This is me running my notes by Patterson for verification. Okay, so tell me if I have this right. In the mobile command trailer, we've got Commander Ammons. He's the boss. Yep. Detective Stan Homer, the lead negotiator, loud voice, give a mouse a cookie. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's you, Detective Patterson. Now retired, Detective Patterson. Noted, but at the time you were active duty and second lead negotiator on the case, right? Correct. And then we've also got Captain Flores. He's Super ripped, ex-military, real no-nonsense, lean, mean, fighting machine kind of dude, right? Which figures because he runs both the SWAT team and the sniper team. Mm -hmm. And last but certainly not least, the only woman in the trailer. Officer Tara Ramos on comms, who in addition to liaising with the phone company to patch a direct line between the command trailer and Jaces 42, also referred to as a throw line. Tara's responsible for the flow of information to and from officers inside the trailer and officers outside the trailer, as well as the communications with the precinct. And I think that's it. What about Sergeant Hobbs? I don't... I don't have a Sergeant Hobbs. Normally Hobbs would be in a command trailer too, but he got kicked out. Kicked out? You make it sound like he was put on a timeout. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. Commander Ammons is quick to 86 you if you don't come correct. And Hobbs is just different. He marches to a different drummer, whereas the commander is more about keeping everyone on time to his regimented beat. What one? That's Patterson offering me a beer. FYI, I'm more of a Merlot girl and usually only at dinner parties, but... I wasn't going to miss out on an opportunity to fraternize with someone who has this much to share. Plus, nothing helps get people talking like a little liquid courage, so. Um, yeah, I'll take one. Cheers. Cheers. But you know, truth be told, I just don't think Ammons like the way Hobbs dressed. Hobbs' wrinkly, untucked Hawaiian shirt offended the commander's sensibilities. Plus, Hobbs didn't really need to be in with us to do his work. He was more of a floater. Okay. And and what does Sergeant Hobbs do exactly? Intel. But at this point, he had none, which meant we knew nothing. Before the first throw line call, we hadn't even figured out who was in the building for sure other than Sergeant Place. 
we were guessing that Jay Shaw could be among the HTs because it was his restaurant and his car that was involved in the traffic stop, but we weren't exactly on terra firma with that either. Now, this information gap really irked the commander. Maybe not as much as Hobbs' Hawaiian shirt, but it definitely contributed to him getting put in timeout, as you put it. So that's pretty much the lay of the land. You've got Ammons, Homer, Patterson, Flores, and Ramos inside the trailer, and Hobbs somewhere nearby trying to work up some solid intel. Meanwhile, back inside Jace's 42, everyone is huddled in the kitchen. When? Hello. My name is Detective Stan Homer. I am here to listen to you and to make sure that everyone stays safe so that we can resolve this situation. You should have been had a doctor in here by now. The fuck are you doing? I'm going to do that for you, sir, but I need a little help on your end first. Is there something I can call you instead of sir or mister, a name you go by? Anita. Okay, uh, Anita, is there a last name? Doctor! Anita Doctor. Hello? Hello? Damn it. He's off, Detective? Yeah, yeah, I know he's off. Okay. All right. Let's try sending a medic in. There's a show of good faith. Patterson was right. Hallmar basically did get owned by Gerald in their first call. But the worst part of it is, for all that grandstanding, posturing, and positioning, it just resulted in more time ticking off the clock before Niles, or Sergeant Place for that matter, got medical attention. I, I was scared shitless. I, I thought I might go in there and get smoked. This is paramedic Daryl Hanover speaking. I, I mean, the police prepped me and everything before I went in there, but all I kept thinking about were those guys on one of those boats leading up to the beach at Normandy and how a lot of them, a lot of them got killed before they even got to land, you know? Uh, then then I, I yacked. Uh, I yacked behind a police cruiser, which, you know, settled me down some, but I, I was still really nervous. Well, what was it like when you first entered Jace's 42 Bar and Grill? <laughs> did, did I mention that I was scared? <laughs> uh, 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 honestly, I, I don't even remember actually walking through the door. You know, I, I it's almost like I, I was transported in there, and, and then all of a sudden, Gerald is staring at me with those eyes. Well, they just had a vibe that said, don't fuck with me. I, I didn't even notice he was holding a gun until he shoved it in my face and started patting me down. And it's it's weird. That's when I started to calm down. With a gun in your face? Why? Before I went in, I had asked uh, Captain Flores if I could sneak a weapon in. Really? Heck yeah. Uh, but but of course, they, they said no. And, and, and I got to tell you, once, once I was face to face with Gerald, I was so glad not to be caring because gun or no gun, I could immediately tell he's not the type of dude you want to fuck with. So that's what made me calm down. As Gerald was patting me down, I, I was just uh, relieved, you know, to know that I didn't have anything on me that was going to piss that guy off. Then he starts checking through my bag to, to, to make sure everything is cool, you know, and, and he mentioned that, that he'd asked for a doctor, and I pointed out proudly that I'm a certified EMT. But did that elicit change in his mood? <laughs> wait, 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 what do you mean? Well, did he act differently after you stood up for your profession? No, it was all business. He just went on to pull medication out of my bag and asked me questions about what each med does, kind of like he was quizzing me, you know? Uh, finally, he lowers his gun and sort of motions for me to follow him and, and says, This way.
Our stories matter. That's why the Black Information Network proudly supports the Hashtag Matter podcast, a new full-cast eight-episode drama series from Shondaland Audio and iHeart Podcast that delves into social justice topics. Told through a fictional lens, Hashtag Matter sheds a light on issues relevant to Black communities across America, much like the work we do on the Black Information Network. BIN is America's only 24-7 all-news network where every story is told from Black Black Perspectives by Black journalists who understand the importance of telling stories with us in mind. Listen to the Black Information Network online now at BINnews.com. That's BINnews.com on the iHeartRadio app or simply tell your smart speaker to play the Black Information Network station. The first person I see as we cross through the swinging doors into the kitchen is Sergeant Place, who's looking pale and sweaty, and there's this little puddle of blood that had formed underneath him. So naturally, or or unnaturally, I lean in to check on him. Why would you say unnaturally? Because I I didn't even see Niles lying on the kitchen table. And to this day, I I don't know if that's because the officers outside had loaded me up before I entered the bar, like with encouraging words, like, make sure Place is okay. You know, make sure the sergeant is okay and and do everything you can for Place. Or if I was just rattled in in general because of the situation. But Niles, Niles, he was invisible to me at first. And I'm trained to observe a scene, you know, to triage it out. It, it literally took Gerald putting his hand on me and saying, not him, help my boy out. And that still bothers me to this day, you know. What does? Um, uh, it, it, it just feels like, you, you know, like I, I, I'm the white guy and I only saw the other white man that, that needed help when clearly Niles was, was the one who needed attention first. And don't get me wrong, Sergeant Place was a mess, but this poor kid, I I, I, I should have seen him first. What did he look like to you? Uh, he looked like he had been attacked by some kind of monster from a science fiction movie, you know? Um, and I sort of remember saying to myself, but out loud, what happened to him? The punk-ass police happened. Okay, I, I swear to God, after Gerald said that, I turned over to Sergeant Place, and his expression will haunt me for the rest of my life. Why? What did it look like? It was like nothing. Like a void. Like nobody was home. So I, I don't know. It was getting too meta for me. I wasn't there to make observations on people's souls. So I just pushed my thoughts aside, and I went to work. After I checked Niles' blood pressure, I sort of ran my fingers along the back of Niles' neck, and that's when I felt this big bulge in the C1 and uh, C2 area, and I thought, oh, uh-oh. What? Uh-oh, what? He, he could have a broken neck. So you knew pretty quickly that... Yeah, this was no bueno. Okay, yeah. and what's happening right here in the video when Gerald gets in your face? We can't hear what's being said. Well, at the time, I, I, I wasn't aware, or I it hadn't totally clicked with me, uh, that, that that was his son on the table. So I just said, very matter-of-factly, you know, without any bedside manner, I said, um, his neck is broke. And, and that's when Gerald sort of blinks awkwardly and gets in my face and says, no, don't fuck with me. Like, he wanted to bully me out of my assessment. And then, then, then Jace kind of separates Gerald away from me, and that's where you hear Jace say, come on, man. What do we gotta do for none? My immobilization kit is outside in the truck, so I need to go grab that and come back. 
after I get him strapped in, then I can take him to the hospital. What you waiting for? Go, 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 go get it. Hey, hey, get your hands up! Whoa, 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 whoa! I'm unarmed, I'm unarmed! Bam! Six SWAT officers with guns drawn, they jump on me and they sweep me from the building. I don't even think my feet were touching the ground. Where did they take you? They like literally carried me to their command center, which wasn't what I was expecting at all because in my mind, I thought I was going to quickly grab my supplies and head right back into the bar. But then the cops, they wanted to interview me first, so I wasn't allowed to do what I felt was needed. And things just kind of went sideways from there. He was right. When local media picks up the story, it turns things that are already sideways upside down. I'm Colleen Sanders, and we're here live from the Los Angeles Valley outside of Jason's 42 Sports Bar and Grill, where a carjacking suspect opened fire on police, leaving one officer dead and the second officer wounded. Apparently, the suspect, along with some of his accomplices, then took the surviving police officer hostage and retreated into this restaurant, believed to be owned by former football professional Jace Shaw. The status of the officer being held captive is unknown at this time, but we are hearing reports that Jace Shaw may be among the kidnappers. And if this is true, it would not be Shaw's first run with law enforcement. this is bullshit. It was like pouring gasoline on a fire. Martin Sims recounts. So inside the bar, you know, we're expecting the paramedic to come back and, you know, help Niles out, get him to the hospital. We look up, and the news media is vilifying this poor kid and they're calling him a carjacker. And I mean, there's just no other way of saying it, okay? It just, it just sucked. If Martin thought the media reporting was incendiary and unfair, I had to get Jace's take on it as well. But in order to do that, I had some making up to do. If you remember my last chat with Jace, it ended abruptly and not on good terms. Man, get this thing off me! I ain't doing this bullshit. Needless to say, I wasn't quite sure how receptive Jace was going to be to me reaching out again. Hello. Jace. Who this? It's Kate Bell. And? And I I just wanted to um, reach out to you and tell you that I, I didn't like the way that things went the last time that we chatted. And I was hoping that, you know, maybe that I could get a do-over. Oh. Hello? Hello? It was clear Jay still needed some space. But I did connect again with Michelle, Niles' mother. Hello? Michelle? It's Kate Bell. Hey, Kate. For the record, every time I talked to Michelle, whether it was on the phone or in person, I was acutely aware of how much I was asking of her to revisit the day's events. For the most part, I tried as best as I could to employ a light touch, but when you're touching a raw nerve, I'm not sure that's even possible. The last thing I wanted to do was offend Michelle in any way, and I definitely didn't want her to shut down on me like Jace did. Do you remember where you were when you first found out that there was a problem? I was actually on a date when I first knew for sure that something was up. Niles had been pushing me a lot to use social media to get back out there and start seeing people again. I think he was worried about me being lonely when he went off to school. And to be honest, so was I. 
So, yeah, that's what I was doing <laughs> on a date, even though it always felt kind of weird to me to even call it that. Why? I'm from the old school, where a date is when a guy asks you for your digits and then calls or whatever. But this was one of those situations where you swipe right and exchange a few direct messages. And how was it going? Awful. <laughs> his shoes were a hot mess, his personality was worse, and his cologne smelled bad. I've been there. So wait, why did you say that you knew for sure that that, that something was up? Well, I had texted Niles a few times and gotten no response, which had me super annoyed because I had just gotten on him earlier that morning about that. But I was trying to brush it aside and just, you know, saying to myself, Michelle, relax, give him some space, you need to get used to his independence, that sort of thing. So when did you realize it wasn't just a case of him being slow to get back? Me and my so-called date were waiting for a table at the bar at El Cholo's when I saw Jace's 42 on the news with a bunch of cop cars in the background. And my heart just sunk. But it was also confusing because the first reporting just didn't make any sense at all. The media was making it out to be like there was a carjacking that led to a cop's murder and the kidnapping of another policeman. So I just started blowing Niles' phone up and, and Gerald's too, but no answer. Do you remember what you said to your date as all of this was unfolding? I didn't know that man nothing. I just grabbed my purse, walked out the restaurant, got in my car, and started driving over to Jason's 42. Helmer was still playing it slow. Way too slow, if you ask me. He wasn't happy about sending the medic in for nothing, as he put it. So he instructed me and Hobbs to interrogate Daryl which I wasn't totally mad at, because at this point, we were still so far behind on intel. Not only was Detective Patterson one of the most likable people I interviewed in this process, he had recordings, which I love. Here's a tape of he and Sergeant Hobbs interviewing Daryl the medic after he came out of Jace's 42. So the carjackers slash hostage takers, they beat up Sergeant Place after they shot him or before they shot him. There's three voices on this recording, and I want to make sure you know who's who. That first voice, which you probably recognize, is Detective Patterson. No. Yes. Maybe. I don't know. That was Daryl, the medic, who you've already met. Look, forget about Sergeant Place for a second. The police or somebody beat up one of the guys inside. The young one, Niles. And I need to take my immobilization kit in there and get this boy to a hospital ASAP. Wait. So the carjacker got beat up? And that right there is Sergeant Hobbs. If you remember, he was supposed to be in the trailer with the rest of the hostage negotiation team, but Commander Ammons kicked him out. Wait, you guys keep talking about a carjacker. I don't know anything about that, man. Okay, settle down. We're just trying to figure out who's running things. How many of them are there? And how many guns? Listen to me for a second. There's a kid in there badly beaten. I need to get him to a hospital. His father has the gun. He's the one in charge. His father? Wait, how do you know it's his father? Something he said. Uh, 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 help my boy out. Did he say help my boy, like help my whole boy out? Or was it more like help my boy as in help my son? The way that he's acting, I'm pretty sure it's his son. What was that? I jumped up so quick, my recorder fell off my lap. I knew right then we had it all wrong. 
Can I be frank with you? Detective Homer, I want you to be totally frank with me. Former Detective Patterson was never cut out for this kind of job. His conduct that day was totally inappropriate, and obviously others agree with me on that, which is why he is no longer on the force. You don't go popping your mouth off in the background while the lead negotiator is on a call with an HT. You know why that is. Because? Because you run the risk of emboldening the HT. And that's exactly what happened. Needless to say, Hallmer and Patterson were clearly at odds on how to run the negotiation. But as far as my investigation goes, Hallmer and the department weren't exactly doing everything they could to help me create a detailed factual narrative. They were more concerned with pushing their narrative. Patterson, on the other hand, was much more forthright and even candid about his own mistakes. And not only that, again, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have access to recordings of the throwline conversations. This is Homer. Listen, stop fucking playing with me. Your EMT was supposed to come right back. And I want to do that for you. But you have to deal with me, Anita. This is how it works. Now, why don't you send out Sergeant Place and your guy that needs help, yeah? Then we can get both of them on their way to St. Joe's Hospital. Stan, give this guy what he wants or you're going to lose him. Dream! Come here, Dream! Hello? He hung up? Again? Curtis? You out of your goddamn mind? There's a lot going on here, so let me run it back for you beat by beat. While Gerald is talking to Hallmer on the throw line, Patterson enters the mobile command vehicle, and you can hear him in the background, imploring Hallmer to give in to Gerald's demands. At the same time this is happening, back in the bar, Niall starts convulsing in the kitchen. Jace notices Niall's shaking body and calls out to Gerald. Gerald hangs the phone up, then hobbles quickly over to check on his son and sees Niall's body gyrating violently on the table. Without hesitation, Gerald marches straight out the front door. We need the medic back! Put your weapon down! 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 His gun raised and pointed at a sea of cops. Every police officer on the scene aims back at Gerald when the unthinkable happens. Don't shoot! Don't shoot at the medic! Don't shoot! Hold! 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 I had tactical and all my men on a tight leash. But you never really know for sure until it's tested, right? Well, this was that test. Commander Ammons recounts his thoughts when Gerald came bursting out of the building. Any one of my snipers could have dropped Gerald, but they held fire, so good on them. That said, snipers tend to be a more disciplined bunch. Where we really caught a break is that none of the policemen on the ground flinched. Kate, if one man fired, it would have been like the 4th of July out there. But that didn't happen either, so good on all them too. Especially considering we could have mistakenly fired on that crazy EMT. So, Daryl, what were you thinking when you went charging in between the police and Gerald like that? <laughs> well, I, I wasn't thinking, but in all honesty, I, as soon as I saw Gerald come outside, I knew exactly what was going on. Luckily, I was sitting on the bumper of my vehicle, so I just reached up and I grabbed my defib kit and the stretcher, then ran as fast as I could toward the building. I have probably watched the YouTube clip of you charging with your gear towards the bar at least 10 times. Did you consider how dangerous of a situation that was? <laughs> I, I didn't. I just acted. You know, a lot of people would say what you did was heroic. I'd say more like one part foolish, one part guilty conscience, and one small part heroic. What part was guilty conscience? I, I should have bolted for that door a lot sooner. I, I knew that kid needed immediate help. I mean, who knows if I had gotten to him sooner? I, I, who knows, you know? 
You think the outcome could have been different? Maybe. I set up the archive surveillance feeds from the bar, and I played them on my computer monitor for Daryl and asked him to talk me through what we're seeing and hearing. Oh, starting here? Yeah, that's good. Cool, okay. Uh, So here, Gerald is pointing his gun at the police. They all have their guns trained on him. I go running and, and sort of brush past Gerald at the door on my way into the bar. In the video, you can see him following behind me. And in this camera, you, you can see we rush straight over to the kitchen. And by the time I get to Niles, he's unresponsive. I check his pulse, nothing. I cut Niles' shirt open and proceed to give him chest compressions. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Someone take over for me. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do not touch patient. Analyzing the rhythm. Preparing shock. Watch it away from the patient. Stand back. Shock will be delivered in three, two, one. Why is his tongue doing that? Is it spasm? Wait. Let the current do its thing. When Daryl says, rather clinically, he's in spasm, this may be the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And part of me felt like it was overkill to describe what it looks like. But then I said, fuck that. Because passing current through this kid's body, twice, the first time outside when he was being tased, and now in an effort to revive him, is part of the horror of what was done to him. So here goes. The current doesn't move like a sudden jolt. It's more like a rolling wave. Niles' tongue would sort of stick out of his mouth and then undulate and twirl, and his fingers curled up like he suffered from cerebral palsy. And then his body would relax, almost as if a demon was being slowly exercised. chest compressions again. They repeat this physically punishing and emotionally draining cycle for more than 10 minutes. It's pretty apparent by this point that CPR isn't working. Gerald is still doing chest compressions, but the machine is asking him to clear. Uh, We shocked him six times, which is a lot. General rule of thumb is if a patient doesn't revive after three shocks, it's not likely to happen. Hey, look, it's over, man. Even as a professional, it can be very difficult to stop life-saving efforts, but you know when it's done, when, when you've done all you can. Jace puts his hand on Gerald's arm, and Gerald sort of slaps Jace away and takes a step back. Take that bullshit off of my son and get the fuck out. At, at the time, 
part of me wanted to ask if I could check on Sergeant Place, but something told me it was not the time to press my luck. If I was a hero, like people said, I would have insisted that I get to go treat Sergeant Place as well, but I, I didn't want to set Gerald off, you know? Plus, from what I could see, the police officer still had time. Towards the end of my discussion with Daryl, I asked him if there was anything else, any detail about either of the two times he was in the bar that could shed some light on the day's events. No, not really. Oh, well, yeah, I guess there's something. Um, did I tell you that my wife and I just had our second kid? Oh, no, you didn't. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Little Sucker caught us totally by surprise. It wasn't planned at all, and we found out really late. Anyway, uh, when we went in for the um, gender appointment, the doctor told us it was a boy, and I leaned over to my wife, and I said, right then and there, I know what I want his name to be. Hmm. You named him Niles. No, uh, we named him Gerald. Wow, that's... After everything, why? Well, he did everything he could for his boy. I can't say I would make all of the same choices, but I'd like to think that I'd do anything for either of my kids. So, <laughs> yeah. As we watch surveillance footage of Daryl exiting the bar for the second time, SWAT meets him at the door with the same level of militaristic gusto that they greeted him with the first time he left the building. It felt different. How's that? Oh, being you know, carried away from the building. The first time, I felt like I was floating. The second time, I was conscious of my own weight. I was literally thinking, why am I so heavy? When that reporter shoved her microphone in my face. Can you tell us what it's like in there? No, back up. This area is off limits. Hey, what was that? Who fired? Who fired? I don't know. I think it came from inside. More on what happened. Next time on Hashtag Matter. Hashtag Matter. Starring Eamon Joseph as Gerald Hayes. Jennifer Christopher as Kate Bell. Steve Harris as Jace Shaw. Haley Joel Osment as Sergeant Place. Pooch Hall as Martin Sims, and Snoop Dogg as Big H. Additional performances by Niall Bullock as Niles Hayes, Tarina Pouncey as Michelle Hayes, Monte Russell as Detective Patterson, and Alex Vaughn as Daryl Hanover. Hashtag Matter was written and directed by Dylan C. Brown. Our executive producers are Sandy Bailey, Lauren Holman, Dylan Brown, Winnie Kemp, and Eamon Joseph. Audio design by Wolf at the Door. Sound design and mix by Josh Falcon. Music by Jonathan Sanford. Edited by Darren Bowling. And our sound director is Alexander Kemp. Produced by Toby Lawless and Lucy Jones. Casting by Lawless Casting. Hashtag Matter is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio and in association with Wolf at the Door. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.